The Reimagining Development podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, or part of coastal Sydney, and the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people of Canberra, and a number of others across this country. We give our thanks and pay our respects to all Indigenous people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Development, conversations on the new development policy. It's from Goodwill Hunters in a special series in collaboration with the Australian Council for International Development, or ACFID. As the name spells out, this breakout series is all about the development policy. We want to inject new ideas, fresh voices and innovative thinking into the design of the new policy. I'm Jessica McKenzie, ACFID's Chief of Policy and Advocacy. Today, we're missing my co-host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of the Goodwill Hunters and a director with Equity Economics. This is due to the perils of calendar Tetris. We simply could not make it work. So today for the podcast, I'm going to be channeling her. Most of us in the development world have spent the past couple of months deep in thought and conversation about how the new development policy should look. And the aim of this podcast is to bring those conversations to you. We're casting a wide lens on the aid development and humanitarian sector. This series brings together established thought leaders, emerging thought leaders, exciting new voices and perspectives from across the sector and beyond. I am extremely excited about today's podcast interview guest, because it's rare that we at ACVID get to swivel the microphone towards ourselves. We do enormous work here in convening members in the development and humanitarian communities. We lead, we liaise, we listen, and we parlay what the sector wants and needs into solid policy asks. Within these four walls, we have many big brains and even bigger hearts, and today you'll get the chance to meet one of those. Natasha Chabra is ACFID's humanitarian advisor. Her background is she's worked with Emergency Management Australia in federal government. She's been a senior ministerial advisor, working for the Minister for Emergency Management and National Recovery and Resilience. Her postgraduate work has been in large-scale displacements and how to manage them. And she's also worked with the UNHCR, Red Cross and Attorney Generals. Here, her day-to-day work involves representing all of our humanitarian work. She manages something called the HRG, the Humanitarian Reference Group. You'll often see her on SBS or ABC whenever there's a crisis anywhere in the world. And she's dealing with complex things such as the intersection between climate, humanitarian and food insecurity, that nexus. And she's a senior member of the policy and advocacy team. We're catching her briefly before she hops on a plane to Cox's Bazaar to be part of an evaluation, which is fairly typical for her work. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you, Jess. What a lovely introduction. (laughs) It's all true. (laughs) Natasha, you recently led ACFID's humanitarian policy submission in one part of our broader submission, which I'd like to talk about shortly. But first, could you just set the scene for us? What is the scale of humanitarian need out there in the world right now? Yeah, thanks, Jess. Um, Look, I'm sorry to be starting off with quite a grim picture. I wish it was a better story, but the humanitarian reality is not good. Um, There's more people on the move than ever. The toll of violence on civilians in various um, conflict regions is really high. We're facing the largest food crisis in modern history. Climate change is exacerbating all of these issues and the sector's goals to end poverty um, have really been derailed. So humanitarian needs are very much on the rise. In fact, I think it's a 70% rise over the last three or four years itself. 70% rise over the last three or four years. Wow. I know. We're constantly seeing the media and policy reports talking about this growing need. 
um, why are humanitarian needs growing so much? Yeah, so it feels, you know, I think as a member of the community, you're probably watching the news all the time and humanitarian needs are always there, but it is true that they really have escalated in recent years. And we are calling that um, the convergence of the three C's. So conflict, climate and COVID. Um, Conflict as in the various protracted conflicts in the world, but also the emergence of the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, COVID in the sense that the pandemic has really shaken all of the underlying vulnerabilities that we had in various countries around gender and disability and climate change, of course, it's the most existential threat. So, for example, with food insecurity, um, the conflict in Ukraine has driven up um, and made inaccessible various uh, wheat products. Climate has meant that countries have been in drought for many years and COVID has really set back uh, a lot of the development gains in those countries as well. Right. So how is that affecting the way humanitarian aid is collected and spent? It's put a lot of pressure on the system. Um, and a lot of the global appeals that are sort of set up to respond to crises are underfunded um, and those funding gaps are growing and, and are quite large. I have heard people who are responding to the food crisis describe it as taking from the hungry to give to the starving, which is such a devastating um, thing to hear. Yeah. Gosh, that puts it in stark relief, doesn't it? There's also domestic drivers for states that are contributing to these global targets not being met. So, you know, countries are facing inflation. Um, Unfortunately, we're seeing uh, discouraging drops in uh, foreign aid from various uh, Western donors. So those are adding pressure to the the system as well. And, And the cost of providing that assistance is actually going up as well. So, I mean, we're all feeling the cost of living, but the cost of, you know, um, transportation and truckage and delivery, that's all going up as well. Right. So the money doesn't go as far, even though there's not as much money, it doesn't go as far and the need is much greater, basically. That's exactly right. Right. So the I'm thinking through the Australian response. This podcast series is in particular about the new development policy that's been announced. And of course, humanitarian will form a central pillar of that, I imagine. So thinking about the Australian response to humanitarian issues, what's the background of our own humanitarian aid program? How did it start? And where has it continued to? And just, I'm sure most of our listeners know this, but please set it out for those who don't. Sure. So Australia has always been quite forward in multilateral forums where um, international issues are being dealt with, and that's really great. Um, we've been responding to disasters, I think it's like since the 1920s, so for quite some time. Um, and you, you were in Indonesia at the time, Jess, so you'll remember, but The really pivotal point, I think, for Australia's humanitarian program um, and international humanitarian systems more broadly was the Boxing Day tsunami uh, that impacted the region so heavily. Um, Australia was one of the first countries to respond. So we had people from the Defence Force, from the Federal Police, all of our government agencies, um, and there was a massive investment to provide assistance there. And that expression of solidarity with our region, I think, was quite quite a momentous turning point for our humanitarian program. Mm, it was a real step change, wasn't it? I was working on the Indonesia program. I wasn't there. But that cross-coordination across government was exactly right. There was this unity to our response. I think it's often pointed to as one of the examples of where all the tools of statecraft came into really nice alignment. 
There was a lot of um, international reform that came out of that disaster too. So in innovative ways of working, the global humanitarian cluster system, this all really sort of came to a head after that tsunami because of the sheer scale and the way that everyone had to work together. And um, yeah, there was a lot of developments in the way that host countries um, worked with the international sector too, you know, when they give permissions for NGOs to come in and assist and how they do that. So. Yeah, it was a big moment in history. It was. I'm sure we'll get into this later, but that unprecedented scale is probably becoming more and more frequent. Mm. Um, I also, I've been really proud as an Australian working in this sector because our humanitarian reputation has been really strong. Like our humanitarian program is something we should be incredibly proud of along with our gender equality work. I feel like it's one of the characteristics of the Australian aid program, one of our comparative advantages in the past. I would agree. And I think there's also something there about our own domestic narrative. Australia is such a disaster exposed um, country and we have such strong, you know, we have SES, we have people who put firefighters who put their lives at risk to, you know, get Australians through events like that. So I think it's it's partly a projection of that capability and that spirit that we have domestically as well. That's why um, I think it's quite... It's quite an Australian, uniquely Australian um, capability and um, way of providing assistance. Mm, that's a great point. So I'm going to push you on some numbers here. <laughs> what is the current humanitarian budget and how is it spent? Tell me about the landscape financially. Let's do it. So there's a few different ways you can carve it up, but broadly speaking, over the last few years, the um, budget estimates, so what the government anticipates it will spend, is about $470 million. Just to put this into context, um, our fair share, which is a figure that the sector calculates based on what the global need is, um, who are the donors that are best placed to contribute to that, and how much they should contribute, that figure is $1.15 billion for 2023. So we're under halfway to that figure, which is not bad. But I think Australia should be meeting its fair share. I mean, we're, all, we're the country of the fair go. We're the country of everything being fair. So I think it is, I think it is important that we work towards that $1.15 million. Can I just say it's not bad, but it's not good either, like less than half. Less than half. That's yeah. less than average. Okay. Sorry. Do go on. <laughs> um, one of the challenges with the humanitarian budget, I think, as well, is a lot of that 470 is quite locked in. Um, and I think it the budget more broadly needs to become a lot more dynamic because we are responding to different challenges. We're operating um, in, you know, the humanitarian development nexus. So siloing these buckets of money um, and sort of expecting it to deliver um, results for the challenges of today, I think it, I don't think that's going to be a fit-for-purpose approach going forward. So one of the things that we are saying as ACFID and the sector more broadly is saying, well, the flexible buckets of money that you do have, let's make those a little bit bigger so that we can be a good global citizen and respond, uh, you know, as and when things emerge. I understand as well that we keep making announcements throughout the year about these these different crises that occur and it's almost as though we get surprised each time, whereas if perhaps we had that flexible bucket of funding, we'd be ready and poised, just acknowledging that it's going to happen anyway. Like if we look at the data, it's only increasing. Yeah, there's 
actually evidence that shows that um, many crises can be foreseen and that there's particular indicators. Um, and also disaster risk is a whole field of knowledge and methodologies about how to see disasters coming. So it's, um, I think the, the concept of being surprised every time there's a global disaster, I think um, we've moved on from that period. <laughs> yeah, it's really losing its exceptionalism, isn't it? I think about the next generation and just their approach to this, it's going to be so different. Okay, so bringing this back to the humanitarian submission for the new development policy, there were a few key asks in that. To begin with, this is the ACFID submission and the humanitarian reference group submission. To begin with, it specified that the new humanitarian strategy and I assume the old one is no longer available or it's expired, should be a whole-of-government policy. Tell me more. Sure. So we deliberately decided to make a separate humanitarian submission, even though we know that there's a there's a larger development policy being developed. <laughs> um, and that's because the humanitarian world is a little bit unique and the entry points and the coordination mechanisms are different. There's also... Um, real-time boots-on-the-ground capabilities that the government uses, which is a really good thing, but we're calling for a whole-of-government strategy to make sure that all of those parts of government are speaking to each other. And I can give you a bit of an interesting example around why that's important. Um, so in 2018, Australia was providing humanitarian assistance to Yemen. So we were giving about $23 million um, at the same time, we were also, and, you know, as a, as a totally separate initiative, we were also providing $36 million to a company called Electro-Optic Systems, which is a Canberra-based company that provides weapons to Saudi Arabia. So if you start to think about the parties to the conflict and the flow of arms, we were essentially contributing to the root causes of the crises whilst trying to put on band-aids on the crises as well. So this is why that whole of government approach and sort of entrenching those humanitarian principles and approaches across all of government is so important because not only do we have limited funds, but if we're sort of um, contributing to the problem as well as trying to come up with a solution, we're not going to get very far. Exactly, right? So I feel like everyone's so busy delivering in their their respective areas. I keep thinking about this example of, you know, each government department is almost like a lever, right? Mm. And sometimes it's more appropriate to use a different lever within the machine to achieve your objective. Like we want to get more finances into the hands of people in the Pacific. It's not actually through the grant funding of an aid program. It might be through a Pacific labour mobility scheme with visas, through the immigration arm, right? So you're actually mm -hmm. using a lever from a different arm of government for your purpose that's more appropriate. And if we're not looking at the whole, then we might be adding to these root causes, which in humanitarian, when you think of, you know, I think of food insecurity, right? Like mm -hmm. climate change programming and all of that will be dealing with the preventative side of food insecurity, making sure the agriculture and the water is there, whereas humanitarian is more a part of the response that's unfortunately necessary if we don't get this right. Yeah, I just I can't emphasize enough the importance of coordination. It's and and just that policy and investment coherence. Like you know, I've heard stories about um a lot of climate money coming through to developing countries or or fragile states to, you know, rightly mitigate and adapt to climate change, which is great, but that being invested without a peace building lens, so without an understanding of, you know, the underlying grievances in the community, what the sources of social tension are, 
And funding is great, but funding creates winners and losers. So not everyone will have equal access to that funding. And creating winners and losers when you're not sensitive to the underlying grievances in a community can actually create conflict. So again, by trying to do the right thing, um, if we don't do that in an effective way, in a joined up way, in a thoughtful way, um, we're just creating more problems for everyone in the future. Exactly. I'm still so shaken by that example you gave. And I think this is why it's so important to have that cross-government coordination, particularly between the three Ds, defence, development and diplomacy. Mm. They really are so interconnected. And that's something that Minister Conroy was speaking about on our podcast as well. He was really talking about this whole of government approach and how it plays out in practice. And I keep thinking, you know, Kevin Rudd was talking about them as the dovetail of defence diplomacy and development. And I just keep wondering, have we got the split right? Are they working well across across the three? And how do we think of them as more of an integrated system? So that makes sense for the humanitarian strategy. <laughs> Sold? <laughs> Sold, <laughs> absolutely. Um, a couple of other key things are in there, including a roadmap towards being locally led and that responses should be civilian led. Why are those two important? This is very important, Jess. Um, local communities are the first to respond in a disaster. It's it's simply, you know, international actors need to mobilise and activate, whereas communities um, straight away take care of their loved ones, tend to their assets and property and, you know, play all of those coordination roles. Um, humanitarian advisory group has a nice definition of localization and it's around recognizing, respecting and strengthening that leadership that they show and actually allowing them to make the decisions about how the response needs to happen. And at the end of the day, it's the right thing to do because people's agency needs to be respected, but it actually makes for a better response. So, uh, no one really knows best, um, apart from the, the affected community. And, you know, if you thought about yourself and if something happened in your community, you'd want to be making those decisions for yourself about what happens. Um, a roadmap towards locally led is important because it is a really complex policy space. And what we need is a way forward that is shared and some priorities and actions and who can do those um, to progress the agenda. So there's lots of um, areas in which localization needs to be talked about. There's conversations around risk, capacity, partnerships, the way that funding is distributed, how decisions are made. There's a discussion around racism and decolonization as well that's important. Um, but you could start anywhere and you could end up anywhere. So the roadmap is really about government coming together with NGOs, with civil society and saying, where should we start? Where, where are you going to start? Where are we going to start? What are the changes that we can all make? You know, it's not all on government and it's not all on NGOs, but it's about those systemic changes that we need to make in order to give more leadership to those local communities. Right. So I hear a lot about locally led across the sector, and I like to think of us as an ecosystem with many different players. And this is not all on DFAT to have to deliver or all on the NGOs or the managing contractors or the private sector. But no one seems to have a really good answer for what we should do first with locally led. A roadmap sounds good, and I understand that we need to create that space at the table for everyone to help co-design. But can you give me a concrete example of in the humanitarian response world, when we're talking about ensuring we're locally led. What does that look like? So 
donors internationally came together in a in a big summit um, called the Grand Bargain and talked about funding 25% or providing 25% of humanitarian funding directly to local NGOs. And that is important because going through UN agencies and international NGOs, there's a lot of layers of administration that it, the money actually needs to travel through and a lot of the decisions um, are made before that money actually reach, reaches local organisations. So there's a few different programs that um, DFAT funds in the Pacific uh, where they provide that money directly and you can see that that funding really supports people to step up and make decisions, particularly around um, there's a few gender women's women's rights groups and, and networks that do a really good job of that. Fantastic. And I know that it's often easier and um, the modalities are already established to provide big scale funding in an emergency to someone like the WFP or other UN agencies who might be poised and ready with the absorptive capacity. But often what ends up happening is, in my understanding, some of those large scale entities end up passing on the work to sometimes Australian NGOs or others who will actually be delivering the services. And so you sort of lose that management fee you lose the Australian branding and the communication alongside it. Not that we should be branding everything on our development program. That's not the point at all. In fact, it can be counterproductive. But also there's delays with how long it takes to get there. So I just also, I know that's very different to locally led, but I just also wanted to acknowledge that, um, you know, there's lots of ways that the system can be made more agile and cost effective. It's not always just about adding more money to the to the cause. No, that's definitely right. And I think it goes to some, you know, pretty basic principles around effective humanitarian assistance, like, you know, not shipping in cartons of items that could be sourced from a local market because the economy then reaps the benefits. So it's it's a similar concept. If you have a local community that's got um, some civil organisations and some NGOs that are there and they're okay enough to, you know, following the disaster, them being meaningfully employed and supported to, you know, lead on the response is actually better for their recovery as well. Mm. Using the systems that are there. (laughs) Okay, Natasha, we've skirted around this a little bit. Also in the submission, there's a call for early or anticipatory action. Can you give me an example of where that's worked well? What does that look like? Yeah, so anticipatory action, it's all about pre-positioning money and resources and decisions ahead of a disaster. So it's not about that long-term prevention and resilience work, but it's about, okay, this is a really disaster-prone region. This is a type of disaster they're likely to face, you know, this year or this month, um, and this is how we can support them. So there is a bit of a trigger threshold. So that trigger might be a, a particular wind speed of an approaching storm or the water flow of a certain volume um, upstream of a flood-prone region. So the kinds of things that you look for to actually inject support into a community before disaster strikes, because once disaster strikes, access becomes an issue and it's harder to reach people and to identify who's doing what. So anticipatory action is doing a bit of that work beforehand. And there's a lot of quite compelling evidence, actually. Um, Studies have shown that every dollar that is invested in anticipatory action can give families up to $7 in benefits and also avoided losses. So it's a pretty compelling case. The challenge is just around the 
political will and confidence to sort of invest in something before something happens. It's a lot more politically palatable to be seen to be responding and um and reacting. But it's that, yeah, the the dividends and and what we could get out of investing more in anticipatory action is really high. That's a pretty compelling case for how to make a more efficient use of an existing budget then. If you're going to be able to save $7 per dollar spent, that's fantastic. And we know that we're looking for ways to make the current aid program go further. We want those development dollars to be able to have more reach. I guess it's harder though, because when there's a crisis, you want to be able to respond. That's the media savvy thing to do, right? It's not as palatable to be saying you're doing the anticipatory action, but really that's a good donorship, that's actually the better thing to do? Of course. And, you know, having anticipatory action initiatives doesn't mean that there won't be a disaster. It doesn't mean that there won't be, you know, needs and, and impacts afterwards. But it does mean that we can reduce those needs uh, and be working within a tighter budget, um, you know, to be reducing those impacts. The evidence and the information is is there that I think we need to get better at using that to tell the political story and, and to, you know, point, point to the avoided impacts better. Okay. Is there anything else missing from the submission that you should mention now? What else did you put in? So one of the things that we really focused on in the humanitarian submission, and I know I said that we wanted it separate, but one of the things that we did ask for was really strong linkages with the development policy and with the investments that are going to happen under that development policy. And that goes a little bit to the idea of prevention of humanitarian crises, because that's necessarily a development effort as well. Um, But it's also about protecting our development investments from humanitarian crises. So if you've invested $10 million to build a bridge in a community and it's really great and everyone loves it, but you know that that region is prone to flood every 10 years, if you don't bring in a humanitarian lens and look at it from a disaster risk and resilience perspective and say, okay, well, let's build the bridge in a, in a slightly different way, let's invest a little bit of extra money to make sure that it actually survives that one in 10 year flooding event. Yeah, I think I keep casting my mind forward and thinking what's different about the next 10 years from anything we've had before. And those are the kinds of questions. It's hard, though, because at the moment, we're all dealing with siloed buckets of money. Um, And so changing that is really difficult. But I think we can start with these smaller case studies to see how and and the sector calls them, you know, things like crisis modifiers. And there's all these, these terms and these concepts out there that show how you can bring together development and humanitarian investments to really get bang for buck. Mm. We need ports that are more resistant to storms and large waves. We need cranes that are more resistant to really significant winds that can still operate in those Mm -hmm. conditions. And anyone who's been in an earthquake in a high-rise building knows that you want to be in a a fairly well-designed one. That's right. And it's also about you know, disasters bring out existing vulnerabilities. They don't create inequalities in and of themselves. They they bring to the surface the inequalities that already exist. So inequalities around gender, around disability and other minorities, those are the things that come to the fore when there's a crisis. And alleviating gender inequality and um, promoting disability inclusion are, you know, that's what the development sector, they're, they're the basic building blocks. So investing in those will hopefully reduce 
that those um, unequal impacts of disasters. Exactly, helping those who need it most, which is core to the SDGs if you read them carefully. That's it. So, Natasha, how important are Australian NGOs in the humanitarian response? Australian NGOs are very important. Um, They've been a part of the system for a long time and they work really well together. I think since being in the role, that's been one of my core observations is that the way that they operate in partnership is really impressive um, and in consortiums too. So there is a program called the Australian Humanitarian Partnership, which brings together um, quite a few Australian NGOs, not all of them, but it's a really clever way of um, capitalising on the different networks that they have, the different areas of expertise that they have, and and seeking to, to achieve that collective impact. Um, so, yeah, the Australian NGOs do play a really strong role, particularly in the, in the Pacific region. There's a lot of um, disaster resilience and preparation work that goes on. They have the community networks on the ground. They understand the tensions. They have these almost sometimes intergenerational legacies in the places they work. Mm. And it seems to me that it's one of the sectors where NGOs forms the biggest part of our delivery response, I'd imagine. Mm. So finally, I just have to ask this question because it comes up so often um, in the media, but is there a tension between domestic needs and those overseas? Does Australia have a responsibility to deal with our immediate Neighbourhood, you you mentioned at first the fires and the floods we've experienced here. Should that come first and foremost? And how does that fit into this sectoral discussion? Ah, yes, the question that comes up every time there's a disaster overseas. Um, Well, we can look to the humanitarian principles. They help us a little bit here. And there is a principle around humanity. So that is about acting wherever there is suffering. And our obligation should be where the need is. But... We can't do everything. I think it would be very unrealistic of us to ask um, government to fix everything everywhere, help everyone all the time. I don't think that's fair. Um, It's smart to be using our relative advantage and, and the capabilities and skills that we have in Australia. But we do live in an interconnected world. And that's I'm not just talking about the region, but I'm talking globally. And I can't think of better proof than the pandemic. Um, You know, we were all hearing about a new variant in South Africa one night on the news. And the next day there was a case in Sydney Airport, Kingsford Smith. Like just the rapidity of the, the, the spread of COVID really goes to show that we do live in a globally interconnected world. And, yes, helping in our region is important because you know, they're our immediate region, they're our neighbours, but I I don't think that should be to the exclusion of acting globally and building meaningful partnerships with countries in the Middle East and in Africa. Fantastic. Well, I hope everyone listening goes and reads your humanitarian submission on behalf of the sector. A lot of work was put into that by many NGOs. It's coordinated by yourself at ACFID. Thank you so much for your time today, Natasha. This has been Jessica McKenzie on the Reimagining Development Policy podcast. This is our final episode in the current series. If you've enjoyed it, please let us know. Thanks again and bye for now.